18. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. It says this, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as, to, as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline! And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So here's Proverbs 8, sorry, 7, and we'll pick up in 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. By the way, this is what an adulteress is kind of speaking to somebody that she's trying to seduce. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. It's a long passage. It's God's word for us tonight. If you would, let me pray, and then we'll consider. Father... As we turn to take a look at what you say about sex, I I realize this is a delicate, sensitive subject. There's a lot of different spiritual backgrounds present here. There's a lot of different sexual backgrounds. 
present tonight, and um, some of us here have never had sex. Some of us have. Some of us are very confused about this topic and have lots of questions. Uh, Some of us are more attracted to our own gender. Uh, There are some of us here that have undergone uh, horrific sexual treatment. Uh, Some of us have serious shame and regret and secret addictions in this area. And so, Father, uh, we would ask that you would be especially gracious and gentle uh, with us tonight. And we trust that you will. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Don't know what's going on with my throat. But it'll deal. Um, There's a show that I like to watch every now and then. It's called The Office. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But there's a, there's a character on the show named Michael Scott, who's the regional manager of this paper company. And he starts dating this HR rep in the office called, she's called Holly. And um, they've gone on, a, they start going on a couple dates. And so he starts wondering, what does that mean for them sexually? They've gone on a couple dates. What, is, what could that mean? And so he has this little monologue, which is this amazing little quote that he gives, and he says this, In my opinion, the third date is traditionally the one where you have sex. Does Holly feel that way? I don't know. I'll probably find out tonight. If she starts having sex with me, I'll know for sure. No, I think what you see from that quote and what you could see from lots of different examples that I could give from Michael Squat is that he is um, he's pretty confused when it comes to the topic of sex, especially as he's getting to know this girl, Holly. Uh, when do we have sex? Do we have sex? Do you initiate that? Do I initiate that? Like, how does that work? And there's all these questions around it. And I wanted to begin that way because my guess is he's not alone, that I think uh, we have a lot of questions about this topic as well. I mean, if you think about it, this is, a, this is one of the major conversations going on in our culture right now. Everybody's speaking to the topic of sex and to sexuality, and everyone across the board is kind of thrown in their input. You have conservatives and liberals thrown in their input on how we should behave sexually. You have uh, traditional types and progressive types speaking to how we should do sex. You have um, religious people and irreligious people speaking to this topic. And so what I want to do tonight, since there's just so much, so many voices, and as a result, so much confusion, I just want to offer one more voice and to suggest what does the Bible say about this topic? And I know that not everybody in this room is a Christian and not everybody in this room really cares about what the Bible says about any topic, much less this topic. Uh, But I want to invite you to to be open-minded tonight and to consider that maybe the Bible has some wisdom held out for us in this topic, this issue. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this topic from these two chunky passages, really in in three big headings. I think if we're going to be wise when it comes to sex, we have to understand three big ideas, and the big ideas are these. We've got to understand the design of sex, the distortion of sex, and then the redeeming of sex. So those are the, that's kind of the roadmap of what I want to talk about tonight. The design of sex, the distortion of sex, and then the redeeming of it. <clears throat> so let's begin with um, the design of sex. And really that whole first chunk, Proverbs chapter 5, gives you this picture of sex that takes place in the context of marriage. This is, this is a picture of marital sexual 
enjoyment. Look at, look at uh, verse 18 of chapter 5. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. So this is, this is marital sex that is described and pictured poetically with vivid imagery that is so vivid it can make some of us kind of nervously giggle when we read it or make us blush or make us do nothing because we're so used to this. But look at verse um, 19. In case you missed it when I read it before, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. I don't know if you're into memorizing verses of the Bible, but just a, that'd be a good one. I don't know. Um, it, it goes on. It says, be intoxicated always in her love. It literally uses that word to be drunk, be, be so drunk with marital love that you're like staggering, that feels like you're wasted. Have so much toe-curling, erotic sex with your spouse that it really does feel like you're wasted. That's what the Bible's saying. <laughs> and the, the imagery actually gets a lot more vivid. It just kind of gets lost on us because it gets lost in the translation of Hebrew to English. But I want to show it to you real quick. If you look at verse 15, chapter 5, it says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, in Hebrew poetry, a cistern or a well uh, was, was a poetic way to represent female sexuality. Because you, you, you have to go into the cistern, you have to go into the well to retrieve the water. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an image of female sexuality. And then, if you look in verse 18, uh, it talks about a fountain. Let your fountain be blessed. Now, a fountain in Hebrew poetry is... Uh, 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 image of male sexuality. You don't enter into the fountain, the fountain sprays out. This is what is in the Bible, people. And so it's using um, playful, vivid, erotic imagery to communicate one point, which is this that sex is good. That it's not this dirty, shameful thing, but that God designed it to be enjoyed. You know what the first command God gives to people after he makes them? In Genesis 1.28, if you go back and look, the first command that he gives people is not, don't drink. It's not, don't cuss, don't chew, don't dip, don't, uh, don't go to rated R movies. His first command is, be fruitful, which is a tasteful way of saying, I want you all to have crazy amounts of sex so you can have a lot of babies. First command in the Bible. God designed sex to be good. And it's so good and it's so powerful and it's so meaningful that God restricts marriage to the only human relationship that can safely handle it, which is the context of marriage. And let me show you, uh, if you look at verse uh, 16, it says this. this. Again, this is addressed to young men. The book of Proverbs is uh, a book of... Uh, sayings that's addressed to young men to instruct them. And here's what it addresses to these young men. Verse 16. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? It's saying don't let your fountain be spraying all over the place. Uh, That you need to reserve it for your spouse. Which is basically saying casual sex is forbidden. Hooking up is forbidden. Um, uh, Engaging sexually with people that aren't your spouse, it's forbidden. Sex is restricted to your marriage. Now, I'm not that big of an idiot. I'm an idiot, but I don't think I'm that big of an idiot to know that this flies in the face of just kind of where we are. That culturally speaking, 
this just is so, this contradicts everything that the, our culture's message is telling you, which is this, that you can and you should have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, as long as they're of age and it's consensual. In fact, I, I, I uh, was listening to a TED Talk uh, a couple weeks ago, and it, it was trying to argue the case that to do otherwise is unhealthy and regressive. To not let your fountain spray in the streets is unhealthy. And so I know that this contradicts everything that you're hearing. Why would God say this sex thing is so great, it's so wonderful, but I only want you to enjoy it in the context of marriage? That won't make sense to you unless you understand the design behind why God invented sex, why why it's here, what the design is for it. And here's what the design of sex really kind of essentially is. Um, Sex is, uh, for lack of a better word, an expression of love to another person. And love, biblically speaking, would be defined like this. It's a passionate commitment to put somebody uh, above your own interests. It's a passionate commitment to be selfless and to serve another person. So sex is your body expressing All of me is here to serve you. I belong to you. I am here for you. You know, uh, when or if you get married, you're going to stand up in front of a church or wherever and hold hands with somebody, and you're going to make vows to God and to all these witnesses. You're going to make promises to be faithful to that person and to love that person until one of you dies. And what you're doing is you're making public promises to unite yourself to that person in every single way. You're going to unite, you're promising, I'm going to unite myself to you financially, emotionally, socially, uh, spiritually, all down the line. And because you said, I'm going to unite every part of my life to your life, God gives that couple the gift of sex so that they can express with their bodies what is already true of their relationship anyway. You hear what I'm saying? Sex is a gift for couples to communicate to each other in the context of marriage. All of me belongs to you. I'm withholding nothing back from you. I'm giving every part of my life to you. And so sex is essentially communicating that. It's me for you. I'm giving me to you. That's what sex communicates. And that's why marriage is the only relational context for you to be able to do that and be honest. You can do it in other relationships. You you can have sex with whoever, but you're essentially just lying with your body because you're telling that person with your body, all of me will be united to you when yet really no part of your life is united to them other than just your bodies. And this is really made clear in a great movie, um, Vanilla Sky. I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it. I guess it's kind of old now. Tom Cruise is in it. He kind of plays this hot shot playboy guy who's just promiscuous and kind of uh, having sex with kind of everybody and he's hooking up with like the Cameron Diaz character in the movie and um, uh, they're kind of doing their thing for a while and he eventually kind of wants to cut it off because he wants to go out with the Penelope Cruz character hard life for Tom Cruise and um, so he cuts it off with Cameron Diaz and she confronts him about it. And it's this really intense scene. You can actually find this little clip on YouTube, but it's this intense scene where she confronts him. And here's what she says to him When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether or not you do. 
And that's profoundly biblically true. When you sleep with someone, you're making a promise with your body, whether or not you mean it, but you're communicating to that person, all of me belongs to you. I'm withholding nothing from you. Here I am naked and I belong to you to serve you. That's what sex communicates. That's how God designed it and that's why it really is restricted for this context called marriage. Now think about this. Uh, What's the purpose of your iPhone? Uh, Well, you text with it. You know, you rock out your apps with it. You, uh, you know, take selfies. Oh, and you, like, make phone calls to people. Um, but let's say if I was building a deck in the back, in my kind of our backyard, and I'm hammering nails and I decide, oh, I need to use my phone for this. And so I pull out my phone and I start hammering the nails and the phone's getting all jacked up as I do it and glass is kind of spraying and the nails aren't going in right. Like, that would be bad. Why? Because that's not what an iPhone is designed for. Whenever you go against the designed purpose of something and use it for something it was not designed for, you introduce damage. And in the same way, excuse me, in the same way, no idea what just happened anatomically just there. Um, (laughs) if, if um, If you were to use sex in a context that goes against the design of how it was uh, intended, then you introduce damage. You introduce damage into your life. And so uh, let's, let's explore that. Here's the, here's the second big idea that I want to look at. Really the distortion of sex. We've looked at the design of sex. And if you go against the design, how does that distort things? Well, look at uh, chapter 7. And again, uh, chapter 7 paints this scene. It's this vignette of this seductive adulteress that's trying to coax this guy to come and sleep with her. And look at verse 18. She says this. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home, and he's gone on a long journey. And here's what she's saying. Look, I know that I'm married, and I know that I've promised publicly and with my body that all of me belongs to him, but here's the deal. He's gone away on a business trip. And so... Uh, he's gone, and what really matters right now are my needs, my desires. So I'll take you instead, so come and you be with me. And I think that that's the key. The key to when sex really gets distorted is when we begin to think that sex is designed for me. Sex exists purely 100% for my pleasure and for my enjoyment at the expense of whoever else. That's when sex actually starts to become distorted. So think about a couple of maybe distortions that I would say of what sex is. Think about what lust is. Lust is you activating your imagination or creating some fantasy either in your head or on a screen in which you are looking at a person and in your mind using them for your own sexual gratification. They exist to serve you. Remember, I said love says me for you. Lust says you for me. You are not a person anymore. You're an object for me to enjoy sexually. It's a distortion of how sex was intended. Uh, Think about porn. Let's talk about porn and masturbation to get really awkward for a second. Porn is, um, uh, think about how it distorts the design of sex. Sex is designed to be others-centered, right? Right? I give myself for you, me for you. 
But because porn is such a, porn is such a distortion, because there's not even another person present, there's not even another self that you can serve, it's inherently selfish. Love says me for you. Porn always says you for me. You exist for me. There's this, um, uh, I don't know if I can say fascinating article, disturbing article, uh, an interview that was done in 2010 by John Mayer in um, Playboy magazine. You can, you can look up and read this interview online without going through the Playboy website. It's just, his, the, the manuscript of his interview is up there. And, uh, and he talks pretty graphically about his relationship with porn and stuff like this. And so I want to read you one little excerpt. There was more than I wanted to read you, but honestly, it was just kind of too explicit for your young ears to hear. So I want to read one little excerpt, and there is a, you know, this is fairly explicit, so buckle your seatbelt. He says this. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know what to say there. Um, he says this. I grew up in my own head. And as soon as I lose that control, once I have to deal with someone else's desires, I cut and run. I can invent things really well. I mean, I have unbelievable orgasms alone. They're always the best. They always end the way I want them to end. And I have such an ability to make believe I can almost project something onto my wall, watch it, and get off to it. Sexually, musically, it doesn't matter. When I meet somebody, I'm in a situation in which I can't run it because another person is involved. That means letting someone else talk, not waiting for them to remind you of something interesting that you had in mind. And he goes on, but what he's basically saying is sex and porn and masturbation are so enjoyable for me because I'm in control and I get to experience sexual gratification when I want it, how I want it, in my terms, because I'm in control. But as soon as you introduce another person, they've got their own desires, they've got their own wishes, they've got their own demands, and you've got to deal with another human, which involves work and patience, and you've got to forgive them, and you've got to wait, and you've got to serve them and care about their needs, and it's just a lot easier if I just do it by myself. Like, you see how that's just a crazy distortion of what sex is intended and designed to be? That, that, that's going against the grain of, what, of how sex was designed. Porn demands nothing from you. And it says to everyone else, you exist for me. Love says no me for you. And it demands everything from you. So I want you to know, um, we've all bought into this lie every one of us, um, that we've bought into the lie that this is what sex really is. We've bought into a distorted version that sex exists for me. And uh, we've bought into it with our thinking, with what we've said to people, with things that we've done. And so my assumption and my point, my claim, is that everyone in this room, especially me, is sexually broken. doesn't matter if you're a virgin or not or have ever done anything sexually explicit or not. We're all sexually damaged in some way. And so listen to this verse and see if this resonates with you. Look at, look, go back up to chapter 5, verse 22. It says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. Does that language like resonate with you? This idea of, I'm ensnared, I'm trapped into this kind of my sexual sin stuff. Like the cords of it are uh, so restricting me, it feels like I can't move, I can't get out of it, even when I want to, even when I try to stop, I can't. 
I mean, for some of you, uh, for you, it's that you just habitually keep messing up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And no matter how many times you've sworn to God or sworn to yourself or sworn to each other, we'll never do that again. Inevitably, uh, it happens. Like, like the, the ritual uh, takes place, which, which may look like for some of you, we're gonna, you're going to come over and we're going to go to my room and we're going to close the door and we're going to watch a movie when we have no intention of actually watching a movie. I mean, we have a term for this now in our culture. It's Netflix and chill, right? We're going to Netflix and chill. Maybe that's not the ritual for you, but there is some sort of thing. When we get together, there's this expectation that it's going to lead to this, and we're not going to really stop it. Uh, Maybe for you, it's uh, either when you go out at night or go out on the weekend, you either try to do this or not try to do this, where you inevitably have too much to drink and uh, engage with somebody sexually. That's against the design of how God intended it. And it may just mean... You know, crazy making out on the dance floor with someone you don't know, or it may mean hooking up with somebody, or whatever else. Um, for some of us, and uh, this goes across the board, guys and girls, that we are ensnared in an, addic- in an addiction to porn, where we cannot stop, no matter how many filters we put up, how many accountability partners we have a part in our life, uh, no matter how much stuff we've tried to double down our efforts to stop. It's just choking us. We can't quit. And I'd say some of us in this room that your sexuality has been taken from you. You were taken advantage of. You had nothing to do with it. And now you kind of carry around this baggage of will I ever be loved? Will I ever be clean? And it's just this constant uh, slavery of I can't let anybody know and I've got to constantly clean up my life. We're all sexually ensnared, sexually broken. And here's the question then. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for sexually broken people like me and sexually broken people like you? And Proverbs in the rest of the Bible shouts a resounding yes. So let's look at this last thing, the redeeming of sex. How does it get redeemed? How do we, how do we become free? How do we get healed in this area of our life? Well, look at um, chapter 7, verse 22. It's pretty interesting uh, it says, all at once he follows her. That's the guy that's kind of following this seductress. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. And you get this picture of somebody that's being compared to an animal on their way to their own butchering. Like they think that they are walking towards where life is found and they're walking towards where death is found. And it will cost them their life as it were. And this is actually a theme that is uh, fairly prominent without the Bible, throughout the Bible, that the wages of your sin, it leads to death. When you go against the grain of God's design, it always leads to damage, it always leads to breakdown, it always leads to death. But what's fascinating is that centuries later, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by one time. He was with his disciples and he saw Jesus walk by and he compared Jesus to an animal that was going to be slaughtered. He said, look, this is in John chapter 1, he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God on a collision course with the cross where he was going to be butchered. And here's the question then. I thought, I thought Jesus lived this absolutely good, pure, loving life. If the wages of sin lead to death, why is Jesus on his way to death? 
I thought he was so loving and tender. I mean, think about the way. Think with me really quick about the way that Jesus tenderly engages with sexually broken people. In John chapter 4, you have the scene where Jesus uh, engages this woman who, for lack of a better word, could be described as a sex addict. In a very conservative, traditional culture, she was just like going sexually psycho. She had five previous marriages, and she was living with her boyfriend, sleeping with her boyfriend. And Jesus, in a very personal, private way, tenderly engages with her about her sex life. And he, in other words, communicates to her in so many words, I know everything about you. I know all your sexual secrets and all your shame. And I'm not going anywhere. And I love you. It was the first time a man looked at her and didn't want something from her, but just said, I see you and I love you. And it totally transformed her life. You can read the whole story in John chapter 4. Another amazing story in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at this dinner party, hanging out with some peeps, and busts into this dinner party this prostitute. And all the people that are hanging out and having dinner with Jesus, they kind of recoil with horror because she starts kissing Jesus' feet and worshiping him. And they want nothing, they're so freaked out, they want nothing to do with her because they all see her as nothing other than just a slut. But Jesus sees her as someone who is made in God's image. And so he defends her in front of everybody else, affirms her, and offers her grace and mercy. And her life is transformed. And then one other story. In John chapter 6, there's this, uh, uh, they're all kind of outside, and uh, the religious leaders bring to Jesus this woman that has been caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act. Like, picture that. She was literally just having sex with someone. And they bust up in there, and they grab her, and she, maybe she's naked, maybe she grabbed a bed sheet, I don't know, and she's brought in front of Jesus and everyone publicly and she's humiliated and she's embarrassed and she's just brought before Jesus to await his judgment. And what he does is he condemns the crowd instead. Y'all think y'all are more sexually broken than she is? And the crowd eventually starts to dissipate and she, he looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. He offers grace and he offers mercy for this woman who was four minutes ago having sex. And he invites her to live this life of fullness, a life that's way better than the life that she's been living. You see how tender and gentle and gracious Jesus deals with sexually broken people. Sexually broken people were drawn to him because they knew they knew that he that he would extend love to them without lust and grace without condition and uh, mercy without manipulation. So why then was he the one, why is he the lamb that's going to the cross to be butchered? Because Jesus decided that he's going to do it to take our place. That he's going to take all of our sexual baggage on himself and then be crushed under the weight of God's judgment so that you and I can live. That you and I can have a new life. He says, I want to take your sexual addiction, your sexual shame, your sexual secrets, put it on me and let me be slaughtered for it so that you can live. This is how Jesus responds to you and me. He dies for us, which is the embodiment of love, me for you. 
He would rather die than to live without you. You know, there's this, there's this great video that kind of has, uh, maybe some of you have seen, it's been circulated uh, for a number of years now on YouTube that, um, from Matt Chandler, who's a big um, kind of famous preacher these days in kind of North Dallas area. And he was telling the story of when he was in college. He was a freshman in college, and he, was, he sat next to this 26-year-old single mo- mother in one of his classes who was having an affair with somebody at the time. And so he's engaging with her and talking to her about spiritual things and one time decides to invite her to come to church with him. So she agrees, and so she comes to church with them, and they're sitting in this kind of big auditorium full of people, and the minister gets up, and he says, okay, tonight we're going to talk about sex. He's immediately starting feeling kind of a little nervous, which may be how some of y'all felt tonight when you heard that's what I was talking about. And the guy pulls out this rose, this kind of beautiful, fresh rose, and smells, and he says, look how beautiful this rose is. And he says, I want y'all to smell it. I want y'all to touch it. And he kind of throws it out to the audience and says, smell this and kind of touch the petals and pass it around. I want everybody to uh, touch it and to smell it. And this is like an auditorium of a thousand people. And so people are passing around and then he launches into his sermon, which is this guilt-driven, fear-driven, shame-driven, just assault on everyone about you better not have sex outside of marriage. Better not do it. And then his big kind of crescendo, the big climax of the whole sermon is, you know, where's my rose? Who's got my rose? Somebody kind of stands up and brings it to him, and he picks up this rose, and all the petals have fallen off. The, The thing is all, the stem is all broken. It's all jacked up. It's all messed up. And he kind of holds this up, and he says, who would want this? And that's the big crescendo of his whole sermon. Who would want this? Everyone's touched it. Everyone's used it. Who would want this? And Matt Chandler says, as he was sitting there in the audience, he was so angry. He said, everything in me wanted to scream out, Jesus wants that. Jesus wants that rose. That's who Jesus wants. And you see from Jesus' life, he wants sexually broken people. He's drawn to people that are messed up, people like me, people like you. And you see it with his life and you see it with his death, that he has given himself for our sin, and if he has given himself for our sin, that means he now has nothing but grace for us. And what does that mean for you and me? Here's what this means. That you bring all of your sexual junk to him. And like the woman at the well, and like the woman caught in the act of adultery, and like the prostitute, you will find healing and grace for your sin. Your porn addiction is not bigger than his grace. Your sexual shame and your sexual secrets, they're not bigger than his grace. He takes it, he heals it, he redeems it, and he offers you new life. I'll I'll end with this. Um, uh, There's a story that um, I've heard about St. Augustine, who was a bishop that lived in the 4th century in Africa. But before he was a Christian, he lived this kind of crazy, sexually promiscuous life. Just tons of girls all over the place. And he becomes this Christian. He, he, he meets and, and um, encounters the grace and the mercy of Jesus in a profound way, and his life is radically transformed. And so a number of years later, he's... Uh, traveling and he's, and he's visiting this city that he's been in before and he's kind of in this kind of market area everybody's kind of out and about and he's walking along and one of his mistresses 
sees him and kind of calls out to him and says, Augustine, Augustine. And he kind of keeps walking. And she thinks, maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe he didn't recognize me. And so she runs up, Augustine, Augustine. She's kind of chasing him. He keeps walking. She eventually gets in front of him, goes face to face, and she goes, Augustine, it's me. And he says, yes, I know. But it's not me. And his point was this. The me that you know has died with Christ. And so the person that you now see walking around is this new creation. This this new thing that he's created. He's given me new life. And I think that's what Jesus offers every one of us in this room. He has given himself for you so that you can have new life. Lust always says you for me. Jesus always says me for you. Let me pray. Father, I pray, um, Father, that with this topic being as sensitive as it is, that you would, by your Spirit's power, uh, transform us and enable us by faith to see and to experience your great love for us, your grace for us. Help us to know that, yes, we are sexually damaged, we're sexually broken, we've bought into the lie, and yet you treasure us. You delight in us. You long to forgive us. You long to just be with us. You've given yourself for us. Father, may it not be that these are just words that just kind of bounce off of our hearts or bounce off of our brains, but I pray that by your Spirit's power, you would take your word and drill it deep into our hearts and enable us to drink deeply of your love for us, of your grace for us, that you extend mercy for people like us. Father, help us to know and to believe that you've given yourself for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.